0: Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Laura Harris-Hales. And I'm here today with George Hanley to discuss his essay, Politics, Religion, and the Pursuit of Community, and perhaps a couple more essays from his book, If Truth Were a Child Essays. George, we have interviewed you before, but tell us how your job has changed in the last couple of years.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. I think the last time we spoke, I was Associate Dean in the College of Humanities here at BYU and I'm still employed at BYU, but I am now the associate director of the faculty center. So I have a job that pertains to the whole faculty development. But I still teach in the Department of Comparative Arts and Letters and still write and research.
0: Which is probably your love, right? It
1: is. Yeah, it is. I don't mind administration, but I like like doing all of it.
0: It's interesting that politics and religion seem to work similar in community building. What kind of patterns did you see?
1: Our representative, democratic form of government is ostensibly, I don't I, we don't always live up to this, but we believe in the value of every voice, every vote, right? Every vote is only supposed to count once and it's supposed to be equal. And we believe that it is important that we are inclusive of a variety of perspectives that's similar, right? There's a description of um, inherent human dignity that's in, in secular political systems, and that borrows from a lot of the language from different religious traditions, certainly in our tradition, the opening lines of the family proclamation that every person is a beloved son or daughter of heavenly parents is an important uh, stipulation that, that requires me... To regard other people with inherent dignity and with care and reverence, so that I am not, you know, categorically dismissive of those those individual people. Um, I think both religious and political communities require that kind of respect. Now, the problem is that we have a very factionalized society right now, and we're more polarized politically than we've ever been, and so it's become very common for us to be very disrespectful uncivil and dismissive of people whose views you know are opposite or very different from our own politically and that runs very counter to what we understand is our obligation as christians but i would say also as citizens of the united states you know i i, I don't i don't want to equate religion and politics obviously but i think I think in both cases, as a Latter-day Saint and as an American citizen, I have an obligation not to be dismissive, not to be disrespectful, not to be uncivil. In some cases, that's extremely difficult, right? When you're facing a political enemy or facing someone whose views you find very offensive, that's a real stiff challenge. But we have an extreme urgent situation right now where we, I think we have to work on that.
0: In fact, you started your article by stating that you admire those who speak up and speak out. Mm-hmm. You see a need for greater participation.
1: Yeah, yeah, Advocacy I Advocacy
0: is what you said. We need to be advocates for issues.
1: Yeah, I try to walk a fine line. I'm I'm trying to say that we need we need advocacy and advocacy is very important, but advocacy is also precarious, right? It's it's it it runs certain risks. So I was trying to walk a fine line in this sense. I think a lot of Latter-day Saints might look at protesting and and you know, very strong uh voices of opposition to policies as very uncivil or, you know, that we shouldn't be demonstrating, we shouldn't be protesting. Uh, I think demonstrating and protesting is a great American tradition, and we ought to value that, and, ha- and we ought to recognize that it has an uh, important role in our society. My argument is with the idea that that's the only way to express your voice in society, that, that is your sort of should be your sort of default position, you know, which is often generated by a, a position of distrust and anger and a strong disagreement. And I think you can have strong disagreements, I think you can um, be upset about what's happening, but I I hope we're not just reactive, I hope that we're more proactive in the way that we see ourselves as citizens of a city and of a state and of a nation. And my experience in attempting to be proactive myself is that there are a wide variety of ways in which you can exercise influence in your society for good Certainly voting is number one, right? And and we have very poor voting rates. So, I mean, I think that should never be taken off the table is probably the most important thing we can do. I would say, I would qualify that just slightly, be an informed voter, right? I don't think um, knee-jerk straight party voting or only voting for the president, but not for the governor or for the mayor or for the city council or for the attorney general or whatever. I mean, I, we have to be really informed and very proactive voters. And then I think we, it goes, there's a lot more there. There's, there's a lot of opportunity for us to be, you know, writing our representatives, communicating with local and state and national level representatives uh, that, that, of, of our concerns. I think there's a lot of nonprofit efforts in our society that are amazing, people who feed the poor, people who care for dis- the disabled, people who advocate for protections against human trafficking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean. And and I see a lot of this interest in students as I've gotten out into the city of Provo more and in the state of Utah. I see myriads of people doing all kinds of things, and and a lot of them do it all their life long. In some ways, it's not necessarily things they would put on their resume or things that you could see visibly because they have a profession, they've got a family, they're part of a church community. They are just never stopping their involvement in civic outreach and working with public schools and you know, parent-teacher associations. There's just all kinds of people doing those kinds of things, public humanities and the arts, historical societies. All of this has a really valuable contribution to the health of a democracy and to the health of society. And I hope that people, you know, especially when I'm teaching my own students, but I hope everyone understands that there's, you know, if, if you think of civic involvement as I either have to get really angry about something to the point where I'm willing to protest about it, or I'm just not going to vote, right? I mean, I, I, I sometimes feel like that's, that's where people think their options lies, that it's just either total apathy, or it's just rage, right? And there's so much in between that I, that I think is really where we ought to invest our energy and time.
0: You spend a fair amount of time talking about how we need to get over thinking that everybody needs to have the same opinion on an issue. We need to be comfortable with diverse thought and diverse thought is healthy for a democracy. Yeah. And even at the students that you've worked with, you said you've seen that they have a discomfort for new ideas. And they need to be able to embrace those new ideas, even if maybe their family traditions were different. Do you want to speak to that?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, there's lots of research on the fact that you know organizations do much better if they have more diverse uh, voices heard, right? I mean, decision making is better when it's made by a diverse um by diverse voices and perspectives. So I see this emphasis in the church on councils and on making sure that we're listening to a variety of voices in our decision-making process is really crucial and, and true. That rings very true to me, and it certainly, as I say, is true in the social science research on this. I just think we make better decisions when we're listening more carefully to one another. It also is very vital to the feeling of belonging, right? I mean, if we're interested in creating that feeling, if that's something we're seriously engaged in, and honestly, I don't think we're very seriously engaged in it because we're too factional. We're too sort of tribal in our feeling that it's really only about me and my group and my point of view. If our goal is a kind of meaningful sense of belonging, That has to start at the very least with I've heard you, I see you, I know who you are, and I value you. Even if you and I have strong differences of opinion about, I mean, you name all the hot button issues. You know, if it's about gun rights or abortion or climate change or taxation and regulation, public lands, immigration. I mean, you can go on and on. You know, we have to have an ability to hear and see each other. That just helps the process of making decisions a lot healthier. And I, and I think actually a lot of research shows too that actually more extreme, it's not that there's no truth at the extremes politically. There sometimes are very important things that people on the fringes are saying that people in the middle are not hearing because of groupthink and other kinds of problems. But politically, we have become more and more polarized because fewer few, and fewer people are participating and fewer people are participating with good information. And when they get better information and when they're more engaged, we do tend to see a moderation of perspectives on a lot of these hot-button issues. So we can actually solve a lot of serious problems with more political engagement and involvement and better information.
0: I'd like to flesh out a couple of the ideas you've shared with us so far first participation you mentioned participation on the local level because it makes a difference you shared a wonderful metaphor you said it's like people look at their political and religious leaders like they're on the airline they want to just sit back relax and have a smooth ride and so they just kind of expect to be served without doing anything and then a bump happens maybe they don't get their soda cold or anything and then they explode and and come into the process your point with that metaphor is it's not fair to look at our public servants that way or our religious servants would you like to explore that further
1: yeah I mean I, I want to be careful not to sound as if I don't appreciate someone who feels very strongly, maybe for the first time in their life, they've they've decided, I'm going to go down to the city council and I'm going to tell them that I am so upset about what's happened on my street, or I'm going to go to my bishop finally and say that I don't like the way things are done in my ward or whatever. I'm glad that people wake up to a problem and, and want to do something about that. I think that's an important first step. The only question is, you know, is that the only time you're going to do it? And is your emotional level so intense over that one issue that you have disproportionately represented the seriousness of the problem. There was an issue years ago in um, my neighborhood that that pertained to public transportation, and it was very, very tense. And there was a lot of fighting back and forth on whether or not uh, this public transportation system should come through certain streets in the city or not. And without getting into the boring details of that, a comment a friend of mine made was very interesting. We were at a neighborhood meeting, and everybody was pretty heated, and there was a lot of intense conversation. And this is a guy who works on child development and underprivileged kids uh, professionally. He just turned to me and he said, if only we could channel this kind of energy and solve child hunger, could you imagine what we could do? You know, I thought that was a really astute remark. We sometimes get too emotionally focused on on something that, that maybe is Valuable, or it's a serious concern, but it's not as serious and it's not as global or uh, morally serious as maybe we might think, we do tend to just sort of rush to judgment that someone is to blame. Someone has intentionally just messed up in the worst kind of way or manipulated us in the worst kind of way to make things go wrong for us. And, and my experience in being an administrator at BYU, being a in different church leadership positions and also being on the city council. I know I don't want to sound like I don't want to sound like an apologist for all bureaucrats <laughs> because bureaucrats deserve criticism and they deserve vigilance. Systems work better when people are vigilant, but they deserve some respect for their good intentions, for their humanity, and for the complexity of the problems they're facing because sometimes maybe even very very often problems ensue from the best decisions that we could make that we didn't anticipate or, you know, that there are ramifications or implications to something that we didn't see. And maybe we would have made a better decision had there been more participation earlier on, or maybe we just need to keep working at it and fine-tuning it to get it better. But it's not as if everyone was intentionally going about trying to make everyone's life as miserable as possible. Now, I know when we start getting into really serious topics, I mean, I'm talking about neighborhood problems with potholes and public transportation or whatever. I mean, we start talking about human trafficking or really serious moral issues, global issues, and that can get very tense, too. But I, I still think it's important to remember, and maybe as we get to that scale of a problem, we have to recognize that there are complexities there, that need to be thought through very carefully and they need a kind of zen-like patience and understanding that we're not going to solve this tomorrow and even if we think we can identify the villain there's not one and and not all the bad is locatable in one person or in one institution or in in one religion or one political party or one race i mean these are these are very damaging tendencies in the way that we think especially when, when you get to the large-scale problems. Again, I'm not saying, those are very serious problems, so they deserve our most serious attention. But precisely for that reason, we have to be really careful not to assume that we found the culprit, and the culprit is someone with a name and a face and, and an address, right? It's like that easy. And I think our culture has sort of adopted this attitude of profound distrust towards institutions, profound distrust towards leaders, and... Again, lots of good reasons for that distrust. But when that's our knee-jerk sort of default position and there isn't that proactive work that's supposed to be the part of making any institution work well, I I think our criticisms are actually going to just exacerbate a lot of problems rather than help them.
0: You share this wonderful quote from Isaiah where he talks about the greater part of the people have good intentions and the lesser part of the people have bad intentions. What were you getting at by sharing that quote?
1: That's based in part on uh, research that a good friend of mine, Keith Allred, has done for many years about political participation. And and what I understand is that, I mean, that that scripture really describes confidence that the majority of the people most of the time are going to choose what's right. The problem is, In our society, when you look at, okay, the majority of the voters voted in favor of X, whether that X is a candidate or a a bill or whatever it might be or a bond, if you actually look at what is the percentage of the people who voted, (laughs) you're not actually talking about a meaningful majority at all, right? You're talking about a majority of people who voted, which is a very small number compared to who should have voted and, and what we might have had as a result.
0: Before we move on and apply this concept to our religious participation in mm-hmm. life, I want to know, what was your goal in writing this essay? What did you want the reader to take from your, your writings? What was your message?
1: I wanted to stress the importance of community. I wanted us to remember that our goal is, is bigger than victory of our cause. Uh, whatever that might be, that, it, that we're trying to build, a, um, in the case of religious work, we're trying to build the kingdom of God. In, in in democratic work, we're trying to build a good society uh, that is allowing maximum levels of human flourishing for everybody, right? It's not a winner-takes-all kind of mentality. It shouldn't be. It should never be about vanquishing uh, somebody else, um, but but sort of trying to win hearts and minds. And I think maybe I'm concerned about the growing level of incivility in our society and the growing level of factionalism and I think that is a problem both in our, in our broader American culture but I think it's it's seeped into and become a problem in our church culture that we have to be very vigilant about and make sure that we understand what the differences are between politics and religion, you know political ideology and theology those are very very different things um, even though As I try to tease out a little bit in the essay, they do have an important relationship. And we have been called upon by our church leaders, for good reason, to be a voice in our community because of our faith. But part of what our faith obligates us to do is to be civil and to be caretakers of everyone, to be brothers keepers to everybody, not just to our own kind or our own like-minded community. The call to being civically, to be civically engaged uh, in, in the church and to be engaged in a good cause in the scriptures is quite a bit bigger and harder and more demanding of our Christianity than we think. And sometimes we make the mistake of almost putting our Christianity aside and saying, this is wartime, this is about getting a victory, and I think, I think we have to be really careful about that.
0: It seems like it's probably easier to compartmentalize like that in uh, political situations rather than in church situations. Let's segue now okay. to another essay that you wrote called Waiting on the Lord or Sustaining Church Leaders. What a timely thing to write about. Mm-hmm. Was there something a specific incident that inspired this essay? Or again, was it just thoughts you'd had that you'd been mulling over for a time?
1: Well, I think it's been uh, this whole moment in the church uh, in the last several years of um, increasing alienation and in some cases uh, departure of some of our younger members from the church. I've seen a lot of students and former students who've, who've left the church out of disillusionment over a variety of issues, uh, but certainly there t- as a tendency to to be pretty high up on that list. Uh, a feeling of disillusionment with church leaders and church authority. Unfortunately,
0: and, yeah. I have seen this in my community among my contemporaries, mm-hmm. and I'm not the younger group. Right. I'm the right. so
1: have I. middle yeah. aged. Yeah.
0: And it's really disconcerting yeah. because they do feel disenfranchised. Yeah. And they don't quite know how to talk about their concerns without being labeled and ostracized.
1: Yeah. I think that goes back to that principle of making sure that we're listening, right? And that we're making sure that a person who has a perspective that's different from ours feels heard, feels seen, feels valued. I want to talk about in this essay and in the book generally, about what I think revelation is and how it works and why it matters, but I'm not interested in launching an argument uh, in defense of the infallibility of church leaders. I don't think that's the the appropriate response to criticisms of church history or of different issues. I think the the appropriate response is to listen to the specifics, right? Of what's well, being I discussed. Think, yeah,
0: I think it's inherently. Not empathetic,
1: mm-hmm. and and that's what yeah. people
0: who have questions want: is empathy and understanding. Right. They want to be heard. They want to discuss it. They don't want to be silenced, right? And right. they don't want to keep quiet because then they can't work through these questions in a safe environment.
1: Right. That's a fine line again. I'm 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 sort of <laughs> a specialist in trying to walk fine lines, but. I sustain the church leaders, especially the apostles and the First Presidency, as special witnesses of Christ, right? And I, and I see that as their primary role, and I have experienced on a number of occasions in my life very powerful uh, witnesses of my own, of their prophetic mantle, of that responsibility to be special witnesses of the resurrection of, of Christ, and that means they have a special role in my life, and I listen to them in a way that's very unique and very attentive and respectful, but I do not see them as infallible, and I pity the the burden that we, we want to put on their shoulders to make them into infallible leaders. I think that's unfair to them, and I think it's unfair to how revelation works. In a church of continuing revelation, we are always... In the process of learning more and always uh, presented with the opportunity to learn more and to be further enlightened and further taught about things. So I find that to be a kind of faithful listening and a faithful waiting. When we have questions or when we have doubts or when we have strong disagreements, even, I think there's still a place for us in the church. And I think there's a place for faithfulness as well in that mode. I just don't think we're being fully honest with ourselves if we pretend otherwise. Because actually I think if you listen to conference carefully and you read multiple conferences over time, you'll see differences of opinion. And you'll see that there are ways in which you can be selective about who you are listening to most attentively and who you're ignoring. And you're not being faithful in the fullest sense if, if you're being that selective. Um, so I do think there, it is actually a position of faithfulness to be willing to wait and not rush to a judgment about what you think the definitive answer to a particular problem is or a particular issue. I just think history teaches us to be pretty cautious about feeling like we've got the answer that makes all the pieces of the puzzle fit together when, in fact, those, some of those answers have proven to be disastrous, right, or, or sorely mistaken anyway, and, and not helpful. And so I think I think faithful waiting—and um, I, I just like that phrase, waiting on the Lord, is echoed throughout the scriptures, especially in the in the Old Testament, and I think it, it says something about what it means to be faithful to special witnesses. You know, we're waiting for instruction, we're waiting for knowledge. It sounds a little bit like, well, but I'm giving it to you, why aren't you accepting it? <laughs> you know, I think— uh, The way I try to explain it in the essay is that—and I base this on what I've heard church leaders explain— if one apostle makes one argument about one issue, and that sounds like a compelling answer to a particular problem, but that issue is also not centrally germane to whether or not Jesus is Lord and whether or not he's my Redeemer— it may pertain to something more contemporary. I'm gonna take that opinion very seriously, and I'm gonna examine it, and I'm gonna listen with, with great respect. But I'm gonna to wait to see if that perspective is repeated. Is it repeated by other apostles? Is it picked up and built upon? It, does it begin to take on uh, a kind of status that's a little bit different? And, and I'm investigating and asking myself questions along the way. If my obligation is to follow every single word that comes out of every single one of them, I feel like I'm actually being splintered into, a, into different directions simultaneously, and that's not actually what I think the Lord wants. I don't mean to make it sound as if they're speaking contradictions all the time. They have an enormous amount of unity and consistency in what they teach, but it's, it's what they teach about the basics— and the fundamentals of the gospel that is absolutely reliably consistent. It's when they get out into other areas that I want to know what they want—they say, but I, I also recognize that they may have differences of opinion.
0: It goes back to what you were talking about, about the transportation issue. It wasn't world hunger, but it brought out a lot of intense emotions, and sometimes the little things that our leaders say Elicit intense emotions because we feel like they said them wrong or they're not quite right but they really don't have to do with the fundamentals of the gospel. It reminds me of another scripture you shared in that other essay when you were talking about Isaiah and recreating him through our eyes and you said you know maybe we should be a little bit tentative and you were speaking in this essay about how we thought we knew the answer and everybody else was wrong, our leaders were wrong. I know that when someone is experiencing cognitive dissonance, there's a human urge to resolve that dissonance. So it goes against human nature to wait. They wanna grasp for answers. What kind of advice would you give to that person in relation to this essay, okay, we're going to wait on the Lord, but I'm in a really uncomfortable position right now because yeah. I'm learning things that go against what I was taught as a youth
1: yeah well, first of all, I think uh, they need compassion and they need friendship and they need um, community <laughs> first and foremost they they probably don't need me to give cheap advice. I think they need to feel like they have. An ear and a shoulder and a friend, right? I mean, I think that's absolutely vital to any any sense of belonging in the church for anybody. So, how do we um, go about
0: doing that?
1: Well, I think we have to create the space for that. Um, and if that space is not available in in a church setting, uh, then I think it should be created in my home. Uh, I can, you know, I'm I'm supposed to be studying the scriptures more intently now. We all are, right? We're supposed to sort of own our study of the gospel and teaching our, ourselves the gospel. I think we can teach the gospel to one another in, in smaller bites and smaller communities. Uh, back in the day, High Priest Quorum uh, in, in my ward years ago, and for many years actually, there have been a number of the brothers in that quorum who've expressed serious doubts about lots of things, and they've just done so with great authenticity and great feeling and they have been met with extraordinary compassion and friendship and love and acceptance even though those issues have not been resolved for them I don't think in the cases that I can think of they would ever dream of walking away from such a group because they know that they have brothers there who love them like their own I've heard stories, of course, as maybe many of us have, where that's not been the case, where someone expresses doubt and, and says, look, I've never, you know, my own uh, immediate family members have struggled with, with faith and doubt um, all their lives. And, and I I think they're amazing people, and they're incredible, and I want them in my life. I've never made an issue out of that. I just don't think that's worth an ounce of my time. Now, I would love for them to find their faith. I'd love for them to feel like belief was easier to come by for them, but I don't, I don't know what the answer is easy, easily. You know, I might have some ideas. I might say, well, have you tried this? Have you tried that? But I mean, if I make it sound like all it is is just a matter of praying and reading your scriptures and you know, you're gonna solve the problem that easily and, and just get on it and um, act as if this is a universal as opposed to a very personal problem. Um, then I think that's that's very alienating for them. I don't think doubt and disagreement is always uh, a symptom of unfaithfulness or error. I think to believe that is, is, is potentially dangerous. So it may very well be that the person who sees things uh, from a different point of view than I do is seeing things that I need to hear. Now, maybe they don't actually see all the truth either. They only see a part of it, but so do I only see a part of it. So we need each other, right? Because truth is multidimensional, so it needs multiple perspectives to see the whole of it. And there's something I can learn from my enemies by loving them. There's something I can learn from people who strongly disagree with me. There's people, other things I've learned from atheists and from people of every religious tradition, um, both in person and books I've read over the course of my life. I mean, if I'm serious about loving truth, I need to be gathering it, right, and listening for it and trying to find that common ground rather than expending all of my energy trying to keep things, bad, erroneous ideas away from me. I mean, I quote the scripture that says, you know, we are, we are commanded to cleave unto all that is good and to forsake all error. And it's, so it's a two-pronged task. It's not just about identifying error and shoving it away, but it's also about finding truth and embracing it. Or as um, Mormon says, lay hold of every good thing. Be that intent on gathering truth that you'll, you'll take it wherever it comes. And if, if that's my approach, then I think I'm, I'm more likely to be inclusive. F. Scott Fitzgerald is famous for saying this, but this has been said by a lot of different people in different ways, but he said the sign of true intelligence is being able to hold two contradictory ideas together in the mind at the same time. And I think that's actually what a kind of waiting is. I think that's actually a, def- a good definition of faith, is when we, we hold that together. And, but the thing is that holding together is a cause of some suffering, maybe even a lot of suffering for us sometimes. And if we don't have a community, we don't have fellow mourners who mourn with us or suffer with us, then it's a lot harder to do. So if we have people who say, I don't understand your situation, I don't have easy answers for your situation, but I feel your pain, I'm with you, I love you, and let's just take this journey together, then even if none of those issues get resolved, we don't feel alone. And I think actually You know, there's probably some sense in which a lot of people who leave, leave because they feel alone. Um, I mean, I don't mean to say they don't have real issues, but I think the fact that they have those issues made them feel alone because they couldn't find compassionate ears or compassionate hearts to to meet them with that problem.
0: Another essay, which is also the title of your book, If Truth Were a Child, which is so thought-provoking. Tell us about that title.
1: Well, that, that was uh, based on uh, the story of King Solomon and the and the two mothers who were arguing that they were the true mother of the baby, and Solomon comes up with this brilliant idea of, a morbid idea of splitting the baby in two with a sword. So I was sort of playing with the idea that if we thought of truth as a child, we would be less likely to want to see it divided. Because the true mother, right, the real mother in the story, is willing to sacrifice the baby to the other mother in order to keep it whole. So she cares more about respecting the integrity of that living being than about whether or not she gets to possess it. That's really profound to me. I mean, it says something about the danger of wanting to possess something so badly that you would divide it in order to have it, right? Which is what the other woman is willing to do, which is absurd, right? I mean, the story sort of highlights the absurdity of her position that she's willing to hold half of a baby, which is nothing, right? Of course, I was sort of playing with the idea at the very end of the essay that, of course, truth comes to us in in the form of a child in Jesus, right? That this is actually um, a pretty serious... Uh, Symbol that we should be thinking about that that truth is is not to be handled uh, lightly or to be owned or possessed um, at, at the expense of cutting ourselves off from other people or and and there is a kind of violence to that possessiveness that I think the story highlights so I just I was just sort of playing again with this idea of sort of you know truth being more dimensional. Um, more multifaceted than we recognize. And the scriptures are very clear on this point. Our thoughts are not God's thoughts. Section one of Doctrine and Covenants makes it very clear. It's like one one of God's first messages to us is be really careful not to worship a God after your own image. And the only way you can really work through that dilemma, believing in God is great, but believing in God runs certain risks. And one of them is that you will worship a God that's actually your imagined God and not the living God. The scriptures always talk about the living God, right? And the living God is the one who communicates with us, chastises us, is mysterious to us, makes us chase after him, uh, makes him makes us yearn for him, and occasionally reveals himself in certain ways to us in certain times, but never completely and never all at once and never completely to our satisfaction, right? And that's so that we develop a relationship with him of love and work and growth and development. But when we hold on to this sort of static idea of who God is or what truth is, and we parade it around as a, as a trophy, we've just condemned ourselves to, to no more progress, right? It's not learning the, the lesson of line upon line, precept upon precept.
0: I love that. My husband and I were talking about the title of the book. He goes, what does that even mean? And this was before I read your essay and the story of Solomon. And I thought, well, what could I think that that, that would mean? And so I thought, if, if truth were my child, I thought about raising my children when they were young. I was patient with them even when they misbehaved. I knew that they Mm. would grow out of it, that things would improve, things would get better. It wasn't always perfect. They weren't perfect. truth is not always perfect. It's not nice and neat. Sometimes it's messy. Before I had children, I thought they would sit just quietly on the bench in their little iron knickers. That never happened. (laughs) (laughs) Number one, I don't iron. And number two, they didn't sit quietly. And I think as we grapple with truth, we can't expect it to be anything but imperfect and growing and something we need to nurture and have patience with.
1: I love that. That's beautiful. I think that the familiarity we have with our own children is um, one of the risks that presents certain obstacles to good parenting. By that, I mean, we think we know our kids when we don't actually know them, right? And that's where a lot of parent-child conflicts come from, right? It's like the parent says, no, I know you, and I know what's right, and and you got to do it this way. And the child's like, I'm an emerging, changing, growing being, and uh, I'm different than I was just a week ago, and the person you think I am is not the person I am now. And so there's a real— And it's
0: beautiful as it grows and changes Mm -hmm. as well. That's what I try to tell people. My testimony now is not the same As when I was grappling with issues and it's a beautiful thing, such a beautiful thing Mm -hmm. when your child grows up and is mature and has overcome these obstacles that you struggled with them all those years.
1: And and when you get to the point where you allow your child to teach you things about yourself and about them that you didn't know, then I think you're into a stronger relationship. But that, you notice, is not the controlling parent, it's not the possessive parent, it's not the demanding parent that says, you've gotta do this or you've gotta conform in this way because of my needs. In the same way, we think, well, if I love God and believe God and I claim to every, I proclaim this openly, that's sort of, I've done my job but we run we run the risk of damaging and hurting the very truth that we are defending in the way that we defend it impatiently or with rash judgment or with possessiveness or with anything but charity and faithfulness and long suffering and part of that is acknowledging that there are limits to what we actually know about the, about God or about truth right and this is of the paradox we were talking about earlier. I mean, I want to be a defender of the truth. I want to proclaim the truth. I love missionary work. I talk about that in the book, too. I believe in bearing witness, but I I think we have to do so with a certain kind of humility and a certain kind of expectation that there are things we are going to be taught about the things we think we know the most that we were really mistaken about. That's exciting, and that's beautiful, as you put it, and it's something we ought to— expect and look forward to rather than fear, right? I mean, it's, but it's a natural emotion in us. Nobody likes to be corrected. And no, nobody likes to have a child come and tell them that, hey, you, you really kind of blew it back then. You know, that was... Oh, we've all heard that (laughs) one. You you didn't really (laughs) handle that the way you should have. And, and just to sort of zip your lip and say, okay, I, I, I need to hear this. Every leader has that struggle, right? When, when a, if it's a church leader, if you're, you know, Relief Society President or Bishop or whatever, and somebody's coming to you and saying, I, you know, that meeting was not a good meeting. That did not go well. And here are the reasons why. And you think, well, do you have to be that blunt? Do you have to ruin my day that way? And then, the more, But if you think about it charitably, maybe maybe there's a lot, if not at least a little there, that you can learn from and grow from because someone was bold enough to speak, speak their truth and their perspective of it, right? And to help you sort of shake yourself from this, easy assumption we all make that, you know, the way I see the world naturally is just the way things really are. That's just simply not true.
0: Thank you, George, for writing these essays on community building. It's kind of a tricky issue for all of us. And I love how you address how we build communities in uh, civic situations ecclesiastical situations and family situations i need to give a shout out to our listener cammy nielsen who requested that i do this interview with george hanley she told me she was on her second time through reading this collection of essays if truth were a child and that your thoughts speak to her so thank you for spending this time with us
1: thank you very much it's my pleasure
0: Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, They in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.